is to, to take from the chapter that we will be reading and studying uh, this evening, uh, a verse or a verse and a half actually, and to look at it more intensively than we would be allowed to uh, in looking at the chapter as a whole. I think it's good to do that from time to time. It's our, our, our practice, and I think it's a good practice, to work through books of the Bible uh, which of necessity means that we take larger pieces of Scripture uh, as our study. But as is the case uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, there are sometimes verses, shorter sections, uh, which simply draw you in, which make you uh, realize that you, you want to drill deep and to savor uh, the Word of God at this point. And there are several of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, but I want to 
uh, focus with you uh, in this morning's message from uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, the end of verse 19 and the whole of verse 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. It's a wonderful text with uh, a lot of application to it. Uh, it has an apologetics uh, element to it because it challenges a prevailing mindset in contemporary society. Uh, it's doctrinal because it opens up for us the great doctrine of redemption. And it's intensely practical because it gives us strong motivation for living to please God. And uh, from a preacher's point of view, it slices down very nicely into three points. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And we're going to take these three sections together now. You are not your own. You are not your own. Paul is throwing down the gauntlet to the Corinthian Christians who thought that they could do what they liked with their bodies because actually they were so spiritual. They didn't operate in the realms of the mundane uh, body. Uh, they had progressed to such an extent that they had, uh, it seems very likely, they had a slogan, and that's why the NIV has the, the words in, in, uh, in, in uh, quotes, all things are lawful. So it was a kind of Christian liberty on steroids. You know, they uh, were in the, the realm of the spiritual. They had been delivered from legalism, from the law, and therefore they were at complete liberty to do what they liked. We can do what we want with our bodies because we are now under grace, not under law, and so all things are lawful. Paul flatly contradicts them. You can't do what you want because you are not your own. You are not your own. Now, from Adam and Eve onwards, this has been uh, the, the, the default mode of the human heart, that we want to assert our right to be our own master, mistress. We want to do uh, what we like. Uh, and the great test in the Garden of Eden was this. Would Adam and Eve be content to live under God's rule, acknowledging that God knew best, or would they defy God's rule and would they assert their own autonomy, their own independence? Would they shake their fist at God and say, I'll be my own boss, thank you very much. And that was what the temptation was in Eden. Uh, the serpent comes and insinuates that God doesn't really have their best at heart. And says to Eve, go on then. You choose. You do what's best for you. You're your own boss after all. You can do what's right and you'll be the better for it. 
And so Adam and Eve believed the lie, and ever since, the path of sin has been the path of believing in self, believing in me, rather than believing in God. Believing that I can do as I like. All things are lawful, say the Corinthians. This, this desire uh, to be in control of my own life, uh, you find it uh, quite, well, quite popularly, at least, uh, in the words of the, the poem Invictus uh, by William Ernest Henley. It's one of these pieces of art that's not particularly brilliant, but uh, like John Lennon's Imagine, uh, it has become the kind of uh, life uh, theme music for a generation. And so you, you have this poem uh, uh, quoted and, and, and used by, by people as diverse as Nelson Mandela and Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Uh, they all uh, quoted this, this uh, poem as being very, very influential. This is how it goes. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a shaking of the fist against anyone that would say that they have a right to tell me how I'm going to live. And of course, uh, God is very firmly in the sights of, of many such people. Now, in our own day, we could say that this claim, uh, I am the captain of my soul, has reached new heights, or some would say it's reached ridiculous points. Uh, it's used to assert, to justify sexual immorality. I'll uh, hear again and again the line, what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own room is a matter only for them. And see, it's the desire to be autonomous. I can do what I like. No one's going to tell me what to do. We see it in the language of the pro-abortion movement. Uh, a woman, we're told, has absolute right over her own body. Abortion is a woman's right to choose. And, and this is where it becomes ridiculous. We have the same uh, impetus for being in control uh, in the, the whole uh, issue of gender identity. We're told that if someone identifies as a woman, then they must be regarded as a woman, no matter that genetically and in every other respect they are male. So we have this nonsense of having 36, 37 gender options uh, obtainable by the simple exercise of the mind. So, gender identity becomes the ultimate manifestation of the idea, I belong to me. I am the captain of my soul. And friends, the Bible flatly denies that, denies it for everyone. No one is the captain of their own soul. All people are under the direction of God. Uh, we didn't make ourselves and we don't sustain ourselves. Uh, that's the argument for worshipping God that Psalm 100 uses. Uh, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us 
and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, worship him. Don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Worship God. But especially, it's true of the Christian. Uh, we are marked out, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit as God's property. Our body has been a sh- made a shrine. It's where the Holy Spirit uh, dwells. You have come under a change of management. You are not your own, Paul tells the Corinthians. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Here's the reason for us not being our own uh, as Christians. Uh, A price has been paid for us. It's the language of redemption. That precious doctrine uh, for Christians which teaches us that God has actually expended something. He has spent uh, in order to regain possession of that which is properly his. A price has been paid. Uh, We're we're into the the world of pawnbrokers or the marketplace. Pawnbrokers have dealt with, uh, in the language of redemption, for centuries. So uh, if you hit hard times, then you may have to go down to to Ramsden's in the town centre, and you may have to to hand over uh, that precious ring, that golden ring, and you'll get a loan of money. And if you're able to uh, make good uh, what you didn't have, you can go back one day and buy back or redeem the ring that was pawned. And this is how the Bible speaks of the Exodus when God's people were delivered from Egypt. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Sometimes we scratch our heads and we think, uh, what's the price and who's being paid? Well, the scripture speaks in a way of, of God exerting himself. So there's a sense of God spending his might. And it's all kind of human language. But there is the idea of God uh, bearing his holy arm uh, and God uh, stretching out, out his arm, bringing them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. But there's also the idea of blood, which points to the ultimate price. Because in order for the people to be redeemed, we know, of course, that blood had to be applied to the doorpost. A lamb had to be slain, which points us forward to the true price of redemption that Peter speaks of, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So redemption reminds us that something definite has happened. A price has been paid. God has done something. And this is what Charles Spurgeon uh, says here. We do not believe in a cloudy, phantom-like atonement which did something or nothing and was a mere exhibition without results. 
But we believe that Jesus did actually redeem his people by a ransom, which ransom was his suffering and death in their stead, by which the justice of God was satisfied and his law was honoured. God paid a price, and that price is precious to every Christian. The price that Jesus paid. It was paid in his agony in Gethsemane when the Lord Jesus Christ looked straight into the cauldron of divine wrath against sin and sweat drops that were like blood in his agony. It was paid when he was led away by the soldiers and abandoned by his friends. It was paid in the mocking of those soldiers. It was paid when he was paraded in front of the crowds by weak Pilate, and instead of being released, heard the baying of the crowd for crucifixion. The price was paid when the Lord Jesus staggered under the weight of the cross on the way to Golgotha. It was paid when they nailed him to the cross, when the robbers on either side of him mocked him. It was paid when the sky turned dark and in utter anguish of soul, Jesus felt the crushing weight of sin, the blackening, putrefying union with the sin of a world of sinners. It was paid when he remained under death's power for a time in the stone-cold grave. Jesus paid our redemption with his blood. A price was paid in order that we might be bought back. From what, then, is the question? From what were we bought back? Well, we were redeemed. We were bought back from the law of God. That's the whole issue. Our, our problem is that we are lawbreakers. We've never truly kept the commandments. We've never truly worshipped God from a heart that was right and set on, on serving him. And we owed a debt that we could never pay. And we rightly came under an obligation. And that obligation was judgment upon us. And the price that was paid has redeemed us from the law. We're redeemed from the power of evil. Paul tells Titus that the Jesus who's appearing we wait for gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own eager to do good. That's what we have been redeemed from. But there's another sense, and it's really brought out wonderfully in our text. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. We've been redeemed from ourselves. We've been redeemed from ourselves. Uh, the essence of sin is that we are turned in on ourselves. We're preoccupied with, with me, me, me. That's why we want to assert the captaincy of our own souls. We want to live for self. And this, this self-centeredness is actually no freedom. It's a hellish slavery. And we are redeemed from that slavery to self 
to be a people who are his very own. So, friends, we're liberated from that preoccupation with me to the blissful self-forgetfulness of having our eyes fixed on Jesus, our true master. And the framers of the Heidelberg Catechism got it really right when, when they said that this is our true comfort. To know that we are under someone else's ownership, this is true comfort. This is what they wrote. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. What a comfort it is for us, friends, to know we belong to Jesus, that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price. As we we're trying to say to the children, that brings great value to our lives, that a price has been paid, brings great humility to us as well. When Ina Baxter, the head of Baxter's Foods in Speyside, first learned that the Queen had bought the first jar of Baxter's raspberry jam, do you think she was slow to get the, by appointment to her majesty, the Queen on her preserves? Of course not. Because it was a great privilege, an honour, to be bought by the Queen. And we have this great privilege and honour to have a price paid for us. Glorious price for the King of Kings to have purchased us with his blood, an enormous privilege. And the fact that he has paid such a price also confirms in us his keeping power. What he has bought, he will keep. He won't give up, he won't lose us. And what our comfort is now will be our comfort in the future, eternally. This will be our song. This is the song of the redeemed. He paid the price with his blood. The new song. And none of the angels in heaven can sing it. Because they have never been redeemed. They cannot sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because they were never redeemed by the blood. But we'll sing it. And we'll explore the song of redemption uh, all the way through eternity, finding new depths, new heights, new glories in Christ's love. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In your body. It's this in your body thing that makes it such a, a practical, down-to-earth application of this grand and soaring theme of redemption. If we belong to Jesus, it affects all we do in the body. Negatively, it means that you should never do anything which 
will harm your body. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're joined to Christ. And, and so Paul in the letter, uh, in this chapter, makes application specifically against sexual immorality. Uh, all kinds of things will damage your body. Drug abuse, alcoholism, overeating, uh, they should be shunned by all Christians. But sexual immorality, Paul says, leaves a deep stain and we're to flee it. We're to show a clean pair of heels. Run from it. But positively, we're to glorify God in our bodies. And it's a challenge to be down to earth in our service of God. It's a bodily expression of worship that we give to God. You know, I think sometimes our Christians are guilty of a kind of out-of-body experience when it comes to worship. You know, they pay lip service to public worship and prayer, but actually when it comes to being present, they are uh, not in the body. It's a spiritual ascent that they give. Well, that's not right. We, we, we give great offence to God when we're not actually present, when we should be present. Uh, our worship is a, an embodied experience. To be worshipping God, the first thing we have to do is to show up, to be at worship and prayer. And when we speak of love for the saints, that love's to be expressed in practical, down-to-earth ways. In the world around us, isn't it true, there's a lot of guff spoken about caring for people, showing love, that kind of sentimental uh, stuff. Well, the implication of what Paul is saying here is that there's no place for hot air in the church. We are to love one another practically. Love takes the shape of visits and phone calls and hot meals and lifts and that kind of thing. Love is a practical, embodied activity. James has no time for the hot air type of Christianity. He really gets stuck in to people who have got a disembodied uh, love ethic. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, and there's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Glorify God in your body. Remember, we often say glorifying God is simply reflecting back his glory. The, the, the shining forth of God is reflected back to him. His justice, mercy, faithfulness, kindness, and all that in down-to-earth practical situations in the body, practical Christianity. Charles Haddon Spurgeon again. He was visiting uh, a servant girl who had been converted uh, through his ministry. Uh, this girl worked in a big house for, for a, a great lady. And uh, Spurgeon was paying a visit and on his way out, he asked the girl what difference uh, knowing Jesus had made to her life. And she said to him, please sir, I now sweep under the mats. 
Following Jesus meant she didn't now sweep simply around the doormats. She picked them up and she swept under the mats. Glorify God in your body. We have been delivered from the worship of self, praise God, by our redemption. We're no longer living as though we were master of our souls. We are not our own. Our master has an absolute right to direct our lives as he will. And we will find goodness in that as we uh, submit to it. Whether, whether he was to send us overseas uh, to minister to those who have not heard of Jesus, should it be that our lives seem to shrink because of our circumstances, because we have had to uh, look after dependence, we'll glorify him there in our bodies. Wherever he sets us down, we will find a place to flourish and in the most practical ways to reflect back his goodness. Because you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the gospel is so intensely practical. We thank you that you've paid a price that we might be delivered from being taken up with ourselves. And we know, Lord, how, how readily we slip back into selfishness and thinking of ourselves all the time. But we thank you that you've taken us out of that and have brought us into a new realm of ownership and service. And we thank you that we find our perfect freedom in being a slave of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that in the most intensely practical ways we might glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 49 uh, was raising the question, who can redeem uh, the life of another? The price is too high. And of course, we come into the, the, the great sweep of Scripture, we come to the, the New Testament. And the, the kind of person that's prefigured in the likes of Boaz in the story of Ruth uh, is brought to our view as Jesus Christ, uh, the Redeemer of the lost. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Let's stand and sing this as we close. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the world and the earth is done.
Amen.